Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And then he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us, passing it down, that we might have it this day read in a common language, language that we understand. Father, we know, especially as we come again to this book, that we need more than earthly understanding. We need spiritual understanding. We need you to open our eyes that we might behold truth, wondrous things that by your spirit you might teach us and train us and correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness sake, that, oh God, you would take your word and you would massage it into our hearts that we might be changed, that we might be made more and more like Jesus, spurred on by your spirit, carried on by your spirit to live for you. So God, do that today through the preaching of your word. And Father, help me. Father, protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in seminary, I never imagined I would say these words. I hope you are as excited as I am today to return to the book of Revelation. This is going to be our fourth and final sermon series in this book. You may remember that last year we covered chapters one through three in a series titled King of Hearts. And also last year we covered chapters four through 11 in a series titled King of Ages. And then earlier this year, we covered chapters 12 through 16 in a series titled King of Kings. If you're new to the chapel or you would simply like to refresh yourself, all of those sermons, I believe all of them, I know that one got missed, but all of them 
are available on our website. You can go to the Granville Chapel page on YouTube or you can subscribe to our podcast. You can catch up on all those sermons. And since we're returning to this book following the brief break that we've had, I want to remind you of a few fundamental principles that have guided us in our study. Just a review right here at the beginning of this series to make sure that we can somewhat get on the same page, particularly the interpretive page. So first, the first fundamental principle I want to bring out this morning is that we believe that the book of Revelation is for the whole church, for all time, and in every place. The book of Revelation is for all of God's people, all of God's people, whether that was the people in the early second century or late first century, all the way to today or however many more tomorrows that we have. This is a truth that we take from chapter one, verse three, and you may remember we read, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. You see, Revelation is not just for end times fanatics or ivory tower theologians. It's for all Christians. The book of Revelation is for all Christians. It's for you and for me. Second, second, we believe that Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Its literary genre is apocalypse, or we might say it's apocalyptic. And its purpose, the purpose of this genre is to convey divine truth using symbolic images. This doesn't mean that we take away all literal readings in our interpretation. That's not what it means. We're not throwing out the literal Rather, it means that we're embracing literal truth as it's portrayed or illuminated with pictures. You might think that this is the same way that I or maybe another pastor or maybe even some speech you listen to will use illustrations, right, to shine a light on particular truths. If we approach this book like it's a, a puzzle or some code to be solved, if, if we use it to, to try to formulate a timeline of current events or use it as some key to interpret the future rightly, we, we do something. We actually rob it of its authoritative intent. We rob it of the meaning it was given to us, which was to bless and to edify the church edify God's people. So lastly, we believe that Revelation is organized in a particular way. We believe it's organized into seven cycles or seven visions. Cycles, visions that, that show us God's purpose for his church and his judgment against his enemies from the time between Christ's ascension into heaven and his future return in glory. We have the worst chart. You've seen some Revelation charts, haven't you? I wouldn't call it worse, but it's at least simple. Jesus went home to heaven, and now we wait, and we live until he comes back. It's not the most pretty chart, but it is the chart we're embracing. Seven 
cycles, seven visions of this time. And it's, you might think of it like seven perspectives on, on history. It's like the seven colors of visible light that get dispersed by a prism with each color emphasizing different physical and spiritual realities. So we get seven pictures of various physical and spiritual realities. And you might think of it also like a, a telescoping ladder, which I don't really use, but I know what they are. You know, as each nested portion extends the height to which you can climb further and further. So each cycle in the book of Revelation brings us closer and closer to our final destination. The end of the world as we know it. We might say the end of this age. It brings us closer and intensifies. Just as the higher you get off the ground, the more uncertainty you might have, or at least most of us, maybe more so me. The intensity kicks up, and so it does as we go through. And so if you want to take some notes here for your reference, these seven visions or seven cycles are outlined as follows, and I'll do this briefly. The first is the church on earth, the letters, right, to the seven churches, the church on earth, that's chapters one through three. The second cycle is the throne room of heaven and the seven seals, That's chapters 4 through 8, 1, the throne room and the seven seals. The third cycle is the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets, that's 8, 2, chapter 8, verse 2 through chapter 11. The fourth is the counterfeit trinity. The counterfeit trinity, that's chapters 12 through 14. The fifth is the seven bowls of judgment. Seven Bowls of Judgment, chapters 15 and 16, and that's where we left off. And now we're coming today to cycle six, the triumphant victory of Christ. I want to give it a really long one. The triumphant victory of Christ over all his enemies, chapters 17 through 19. And then the last cycle, the seventh cycle, is the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth, chapters 20. Through 22. If you need help with that, if you didn't catch it, if I still spoke too quickly, which I am prone to do, as much as I am prone to wonder, see me afterwards. I'll be happy uh, to help you out with that. So I want you to have these things in mind. The book is for us. The book is for you. Okay. The book is for us. The book is revealing divine truth, true truth, using pictures and not puzzles. And third, this book is giving us seven perspectives on the church age, okay, the time between Jesus' ascension and his future return. With those three things in mind, let's finally jump in. Let's finally jump in to chapter 17, 1 through 6, which, as I've already said, is the beginning of the six cycles. So since you already have your pens and your paper ready, and to help us understand, I'm just going to give you the outline up front. Point one is really long. Point two and three are considerably shorter, okay? Don't worry, okay? Point one is pretty long. So is the intro. All right, which I just did, by the way. I don't have another intro. (laughs) Point one, five characteristics of the great prostitute. Five characteristics of the great prostitute. Second point this morning is two aims 
two aims of the great prostitute. And third is one great purpose for all believers. One great purpose for all believers. So five characteristics, two aims, and one great purpose. Makes sense to start with point one, so let's start there. Five characteristics. We'll get right to it. First, I want you to see her location. I want you to pay attention to her location. If you look at verse one, we discover that John is greeted. Here he's given a new vision. Okay, this is why the visions that John gets, the seven of them, make this outline that we're using. Okay, so John is greeted by one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. So it's one of the angels from the previous chapters who calls to him to come. John, come. See the judgment of the great prostitute. And then I want you to notice in verse 3 that this angel carries him away somewhere. To where does he go? Into a wilderness. He goes to a wilderness. You see, the great prostitute is in a wilderness. In Scripture, wilderness has several meanings. Several. One is it can be a picture of the barren results of sin. It can be a a place of temptation. Where was Jesus led to? Where he was tempted by Satan, right? Into the wilderness. It's even a place of refuge. The wilderness is a place of refuge. You can look back there if you want, but remember in chapter 12, verse 14, the church is seen as being given refuge where? In the wilderness. Chapter 12, verse 14. So John here is is given a view of her in a wilderness, a place. I think we make the connection to chapter 12, it's picture two, the place, the wilderness where she is there. She's there where Christ is nourishing his church in spiritual safety as he said he would do. But even as we're in a wilderness, being nourished by Christ, she's there. We dwell in her presence. We are subject to the suffering that she brings. And we're safe, right? We're safe in Christ. But she's near. Number one, that's her location. Number two, I want you to see her companion. I want you to see her companion. In verse three, we see that she is sitting Literally, she's mounted upon a scarlet beast, a beast full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. Does that sound familiar? We've actually seen this beast before. This beast is the counterfeit Christ of the great dragon, Satan. The beast, if you remember, who rose out of the sea in chapter 13, The beast who we talked about then represents anti-Christian governments and regimes. The one who rules by brute force and does what? Demands that all who dwell on earth receive his mark, right? And worship him. Not only does his scarlet color identify him with Satan, but notice that the scarlet dress, which we'll talk about in a minute, the scarlet dress worn by the great prostitute 
clearly identifies her with him. You see, she not only rides or is mounted upon him, but she is his agent, much like the third beast is also the false spirit, right? The false prophet is also an agent. Third, I want you to see her dress, not the actual dress, but the way she's dressed, her dress. Verse 4, if you look, it says that she's arrayed in purple and scarlet with gold and jewels and pearls. Right away, we see the description here of, of her dress points to wealth, opulence, right? It's wealth and, and even royalty. Where'd I get that? Purple. Royalty. And her being adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Not that those things are bad in and of themselves, but coupled with everything else here, the fact that she's went, we should see it as she's went overboard. She's went overboard, and that points to her seductive beauty. It'll save us from talking about the relationship of her dress to what she's called, but you can make the connection, okay? All of it is seductive, appealing, alluring. People are attracted to her. People want to be with her. She offers wealth. She offers freedom. She offers pleasure. She offers satisfaction. But as we'll clearly see soon enough, in part today and even more next week, she is nothing more than the proverbial, proverbial, gotta say the word right, iron fist concealed in a velvet glove. Fourth, I want you to see her cup, her cup. Verse four continues by saying that she is holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. At first glance, such a a precious and luxurious cup, you didn't just have a gold cup laying around, right? Right? This is precious, it's luxurious. It would lead one to think that it's going to be filled with precious and luxurious drink. Well, that's not the case. Instead, her cup is full of all things that are offensive to God. If you look at the whole scripture, do a word study on these words, you can see that the word impurities speaks to sinful corruption in general. Sin. The word abominations is specific. It intensifies sin. It speaks to those things that the Bible itself says are especially offensive to God. If you read through the Old Testament, it will become very clear what are those things that are the most of an abomination Things like false worship, idolatry, right? Occult practices, like sacrificing your children to Baal. Sexual perversions, like infidelity and homosexuality. These are the abominations that are spoken of. That's what's in her cup. 
That's what's in her cup. So as this great prostitute rides upon the great beast, she's holding her cup. You can see her sloshing all over herself, right? That'll make sense when you see how drunk she is in a minute. And in her allurement, she's holding out this cup and she's offering you a drink, a taste of these impurities and these abominations, a taste of death. So we've seen then her location, her companion, her dress, and her cup. Now let's look and see her name. The fifth characteristic I want to point out is her name. It's revealed to us in verse 5. Those of you who've been studying the book of Revelation with us won't be surprised where her name is. It's marked on her forehead. Notice that it's called a name of mystery. Name of mystery, which helps us know that it's not speaking of one particular thing that we might be able to, to figure out right now. There's mystery to the name. But what's the name? Babylon the Great, mother of earth's prostitutes and of earth's abominations. That's a mouthful. That's quite a name, huh? And I thought remembering two kids' names when I'm trying to get them to come to me was hard enough, right? This is a mouthful. This is a, this is a name. Babylon, the great mother of earth's prostitutes and of earth's abominations. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, some throughout history have sought to identify her as various cities or nations. Some say she represents Rome, which in part she does. And I think that's clear with the reference in 17.9 to seven mountains. And we'll get to that next week. Others have sought to identify her with false religions, like Islam. Some have tried to identify her with other versions of the Christian religion, perhaps the Roman Catholic Church or something like that. And still even others have tried to identify her with a historical figure. Those of us who remember the beginning of the first Gulf War, you might remember that Saddam Hussein himself... You remember what he declared himself to be? A reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He even erected a great statue of himself in Baghdad. And he said, I'm the second coming of Nebuchadnezzar. And so people said, oh, this is it. We're here. We're at the end times. There might be elements of truth and identifications of various kinds, but... I believe that we must identify her based on not only the, the picture that's painted, but we can't lose the context. We can't lose the symbolism of the, the mystery of her name. If you, if you see that she's closely allied to the beast, and if you consider the nature of her seduction and her immorality, and if you consider her service to the kings and the inhabitants of the earth, which are mentioned in the early verses of chapter 17, it becomes clear that she represents worldly systems, whether that be cities like Rome or empires or whatever they may be. She represents those systems of the world that are employed by oppressive governments. Remember, the beast represents oppressive governments and regimes. She's the systems employed by those regimes that are meant to seduce people away from God's truth and lead them in to worship the beast, hence worship the dragon, to be Satan worshipers. 
You're either in Christ or you remain in Adam, dead in your sins and in Satan. She is an image, as Richard Phillips explains, an image of, quote, the spiritual harlotry of a culture that has turned from God. I also want you to see that the great prostitute stands in opposition to another woman we see in the book of Revelation. Just as Satan and his two beasts form a counterfeit trinity, a counterfeit trinity set up against the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this woman is a counterfeit of the bride of Christ, who is the church. Just as she is seen here as being the companion of the beast out of the sea, the the one seated on many waters, so she contrasts the purity, the holiness, and the beauty of the true wife of the true king. We'll see this more clearly later this fall as we continue on, but I want you to understand this morning that this great prostitute is not only a snare for all things unholy before God, but she is a fraud. She is a counterfeit church. She is a worldly system meant solely to be used by the beast to lead the people of the earth to get drunk on all kinds of sin and unrighteousness. She is not only sin in and of herself, but she is also a temptress to that sin. A temptress to not only unbelievers, but to believers as well. Listen, don't let us think that we cannot be tempted. Don't let us think that the world is not a temptation. Do not be fooled, brothers and sisters. Do not be fooled. And this brings us naturally to our second point this morning. The two great aims of the great prostitute. We've already mentioned these aims in part, but for summary's sake, I want to briefly reiterate them for you. The first aim of the great prostitute is to persecute the church, to persecute the church. We see this very clearly in verse six. Look there. John records, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You see, while she is indeed being used of the beast to seduce people into worshiping him, she is also a participant in the killing of those who refuse to do so. The image painted for us is this. The beast as an oppressive regime, and he demands allegiance and worship. And when people refuse, he tries to seduce them with the allure of his worldly systems that promise wealth and promise freedom and promise pleasure and promise satisfaction. And when that doesn't work, you die. Those faithful to Christ have, and they are, and they will face having their blood shed. 
And that blood fills her full to drunkenness. And like any other drunk, she is never satisfied. She is never full. She continually yearns for more and she keeps getting it. She stays drunk. So her first great aim is persecution, to stay drunk on the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The second aim of the great prostitute is moral corruption, moral corruption, not outward persecution, but inward infiltration. This is achieved by the presence of both immoral practice pictured in her sensuality and false doctrine, which is pictured in her seduction. And both of these are mixed together and seen in the cup which she holds. As we've said before, the great prostitute is used by the beast to lure people to worship him, to even lead the people of God to turn from Christ and to serve him. William Hendrickson helpfully summarizes it in this way. He says, whatever is used by the world to turn believers away from their God is in her cup. We don't have to think too hard to figure out what this may be whether it be the false teaching so pervasive in our age or the rampant immorality of our culture, immorality that is not only present, but that is celebrated by so many. It looks good. It feels good. It promises so much, but it leads only to death. It may appear glorious, but it is rotten. It is detestable to the Lord. Listen, the great prostitute is very active. She is seeking to infiltrate the church. She is seeking to morally corrupt God's people. Her aim is persecution and moral corruption. Now next week, we'll talk more about this great prostitute and how the church perseveres under her attack. But I wanted to bring our time to a close this morning by considering the one great purpose for all believers in light of the presence and the persistence of the great Prostitute. This is our third and final point, the one great purpose for all believers. Like most of you, I spent time yesterday reflecting on and grieving the tragic events that took place on September 11th, 2001. There are so many heartbreaking stories that flow from those events. But there are encouraging ones as well. And I want to share just one of those encouraging stories with you this morning. I want to tell you about a man 
named Harry Ramos. Harry Ramos worked on the 87th floor of the North Tower. After the first plane hit that tower, he and the rest of the people in his office began to evacuate. They, they went to the stairs, so many people crowding into these stairs, trying to get down as quickly as they can. And when Harry had made it all the way down to the 53rd floor, he came across a man named Victor. We don't know Victor's last name, but we do know this. Victor was a very large man. This was a very physically demanding thing for him to do, and he was struggling to get down the stairs. Harry stopped, and he began to encourage Victor, and he said, Look, I can't carry you physically, but allow me to help you. Let's get down these stairs together. And together they made it down another 15 floors. And by this time, there were, there were firemen and other rescuers running up the stairs. And they were just yelling, come on, go, go, go. You got to get out. And Victor tried his best. But there on the 38th floor, Victor's body gave up. He gave up and he sat down. He couldn't go any further. And do you know what Harry Ramos did? He sat down with him. He sat down with him and suffered with him. And both Harry and Victor died that morning when the building collapsed. The story reminds us of who we are together as the antithesis of the great prostitute. The story reminds us of who we are as fellow members of Christ's body, his true and radiant and pure and beautiful bride. We are those who have been called to share with Christ in his suffering so that we also will be able to share with him in his glory as well. And we know this. When one member of Christ's body suffers, we all suffer. So then we not only share in Christ's suffering, but we share in each other's suffering as well. So listen, none of us, none of us are immune from the temptations of the great prostitute. We are all subject to her seduction. But for the grace of God, listen, listen, Except for the grace of God, we are all a heartbeat away. All of us are but a heartbeat away from drinking from her cup and bowing our knee to the beast. Yes, if we truly belong to Jesus Christ, we are indeed more than safe and more than secure in him and the salvation that he has granted us. But we are still just as we sang earlier, prone to wonder and leave the God we love. 
Do you believe that to be true about you? Did you sing with us? If you don't believe that, then you should stop singing that song. That's a testimony as we sing unto the Lord. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But for the grace of God, we are all a heartbeat away from bowing the knee to the beast, to giving in to the seduction of the great prostitute. So listen, recognizing this truth, I want to ask you a question. In light of this, let me ask you this. What kind of Christian will you be? What kind of Christian will you be? I want to draw your attention to the book of Jude. There's only one chapter, so chapter one. Listen as I read verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Will you be one like Harry Ramos? Filled with love, filled with compassion, filled with empathy, willing to suffer alongside your brother or sister who is doubting or suffering? Willing to stay alongside, comforting them, working to rescue them? Are you willing to do this even if you are to perish trying? Or will you be one who leaves the hurting one behind? The one who writes them off as unworthy or unsavable? Will you be the one who seeks your own safety and security first by putting your needs ahead of others? I think we all know. I think we all know deep down in our heart of hearts which of these is indeed the one great purpose of all believers. May God May God grant us the grace and strength to be such for one another and for all whom we are united to by being united to Christ. Amen and amen.